our campaign that we've been in is called Worthy. We've been talking about worship. The theme that we've been in is worship. The first part of this campaign, we talked about worship in more informal ways, how we're just drawn to worship by creation, how we're drawn to worship by the loving, compassionate act of somebody who we know. This, in the second half of this campaign, we're talking about the more formal, more, I'm just crying and I didn't even get started. What on earth, dude? Okay. Get it together, John. Okay. Uh, the second half of this campaign, we're talking about the more churchy, the more formal forms of worship. Um, we talked about private worship a couple weeks ago, about how our, our devotional time, our quiet time, whatever we call it, private worship is supposed to be this intimate time that we get to spend with the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And far be it for us to take that for granted, that God desires to spend time with us, that when we believe in Jesus, he's given us his Holy Spirit, and so we can commune with him in spirit and in truth. That is a joy. What a privilege. And our hearts should be crying out, when can I go and meet with God? Like the psalmist, we desire to be with God. Instead of it feeling like a chore or an obligation that we have to do, it should be a longing deep inside of our hearts and our soul. And then last week, Josh was here and he talked about the community life and how uh, church is a community of family and how we love one another and we we worship together, we exist in, on mission together, and we just exist in corporate life together. Today, I'm going to preach about preaching. <laughs> I'm talking about the sermon, and what are we doing here? Um, just a quick word of warning. Oh my gosh. Each devotional this week, which if you're not familiar with our devotional process, I write a devotional based on the sermon from the previous week. So this week, they're all long, all right? I recorded them, and they're all like seven, eight minutes. And I'm like, surprise, surprise, the preacher has a lot to say about preaching, right? Um, so I'm going to do my best to keep it simplified here and narrow our focus here. But in the devotional, I go through a lot more. So have you ever, like, been either you yourself, so if you didn't grow up in the church like I did, I started, my family started attending a church like this when I was, the year I was born. So I've never known another, like, church environment or been, never known being unfamiliar with church. But if, have you ever been just unfamiliar with church and what happens here? And when somebody tried to explain it to you or you came in for the first time, remember what your thoughts were? Or if you were like me and you've grown up in church your whole life, have you ever explained to somebody else who's not familiar with church what happens at church? I remember when I was in college, I was meeting in a mentorship program with this young man named Alex. And he was, he was on the spectrum, but great kid, and we had a lot of really good conversations. And I remember explaining to him what church was all about, and I invited him to come to church, and he came to church. And then his description of church after he went and visited a local evangelical church, I thought was hilarious. And it kind of opened my eyes to be like, wow, I'm viewing this only through my, my lens of experiencing this week by week. He described it as like, yeah, this band came up and played a concert, and then this guy got up and talked for a while. And I was like, whoa. Like, one, not the language we use, man. Like, this is church. This is worship. This is preaching and the sermon. But to his eyes, who he had never experienced this. That's what it was, right? It was a concert. And he's accurate, I guess, in some degree. But missing the deeper theological significance and what's actually taking place here, right? And it was like a talk. It was no different than a TED Talk to him, right? So, 
And it's in those moments that I think we, we start to have some realizations. Whether you're explaining it to somebody who's unfamiliar with it or you're unfamiliar with it yourself right now or you're unfamiliar with it uh, at some time. So when we start to think through these processes of like, why, why do we do what we do here? Why is church a lot of singing? Why is church a lot of preaching? And my goal today is to kind of walk through a little bit of why we preach. Next week, we'll talk about why we sing and why we praise. Because if what we're doing here is just that, if what we're doing here is just like a, a TED Talk with some Bible verses sprinkled in, like this is a waste of time. Like, you can do that at home in your PJs in front of your computer. And I think that's been our perception of what happens here at church for a while within uh, our church structure and our culture, the American Evangelical Church. And so that's why things like online sermons have become a suitable substitute for what happens here. We don't think that it is. We think that it is second rate at best. It's not even close to what happens here when you are in person, when we hear the word of God opened and declared to us, together in community. Remember, this is our kind of driving verse for this section of our campaign, is what Jesus says in John 4, 23. Here he's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, he says. So in, in the conversation, he's, he's telling her, hey, it doesn't really, it's not going to matter. Like, he's the Messiah. He's here after his death, resurrection, and ascension. It doesn't really matter if we worship God on Mount Gerizim, which is where she thought that, he, that God needed to be worshipped, or in Jerusalem at the temple. Location doesn't matter. These are the type of worshipers that God is looking for, in spirit and in truth. Jesus tells her. So that's been our focus. On when we come to worship God collectively, even in our private worship, it should be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And then when we come to worship corporately, together as believers, same. It's the culmination of what has been happening in your individual life throughout the week when we come together and we worship together in spirit and in truth. Scottish theologian James Denny who lived around the turn of the 20th century, he said, what can be more truly described as worship than hearing the word of God as it ought to be heard? Hearing it with penitence, with contrition. <laughs> These are old school words, right? With faith and self-consecration. With vows of new obedience. Hear that every week, making vows of new obedience, commitment, devotion to Jesus. He goes on, if this is not worship in spirit and in truth, what is So, what I want us to see today is that preaching is an act of worship. Me as the preacher, whoever's up here preaching, is an act of worship. You as the listener, hearing the word of God open, exposited, declared, taught, is an act of worship on your part. We need to reclaim this truth in the church. This is not just an information dump. <laughs> if this were an information dump, there are way better environments for you to gain information and for you to learn. It's in part why I do the devotional. Because you listening to a monologue is not 
a great environment for learning. <laughs> so if you're just here to learn, this isn't a great environment for that. But there's so much more that's happening here when we are worshiping together in spirit and in truth by opening the word of God. British evangelist and teacher, G. Campbell Morgan, you're like, why are all the good quotes coming from people in the UK? What's going on? <laughs> he once said, it is possible for a man, okay, we have to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. We're not just worshiping in truth, okay? Listening to the sermon is an act of worshiping in both spirit and truth. He says, it's possible for a man to analyze the Bible and lose it in the process. He's speaking primarily to preachers here. But he says, to prepare a synthesis of the Bible and lose his soul at the work, he says. To make himself perfectly familiar with the letter and to find out that the letter killeth because he has lost touch with the spirit. If we approach listening to the word of God as merely a learning exercise or an information dump, we will find that the letter killeth. That that is just another religious activity with no connection to your spirit and to worship. You can gain a lot of head knowledge and not worship in it. That can become a point of pride and actually become a block or a hindrance then to worship. The sermon itself, you listening to the sermon is not worship if it is not done in spirit and in truth. My prayer, you guys, is that every sermon that you sit and listen to, it's not just an act of learning, but it, it's an act of worship. Whereas we'll see later that as the word is open and taught that your heart burns within you as you encounter the almighty God through the truth of his word declared to you, that you would experience the presence of God. So that's one way that we can not worship in spirit and in truth is to only view it as an information dump or an act of learning instead of an act of worship. The other way that we can view this is just as like performative. And that's obviously directed at me, right? As the preacher or any preacher, it humbles you. But too often, this is just our perception in the evangelical church is that preaching, the preacher, the sermon time, they become the objects of worship in and of themselves. Not worship. Not vehicles for worship, I should say. We've all heard. We've all heard conversations with people, perhaps we've been guilty of this ourselves. We've had conversations with people after leaving a church, so you say, how was that church? <laughs> you talk about the church, and all they do is rant or rave about the pastor and how great he communicated or I don't know what else you might say, right? If that's the primary place that we go after church to how good of a communicator the preacher was or to how funny his stories were or how engaged I was, that's become an idol. You're not worshiping. The goal is to, for that to be a vehicle to get you to God. That's a cheap substitute. If you're not worshiping the almighty God and instead you're worshiping a sermon that was educational or informational or engaging or a preacher who was able to draw you in, 
That's not worship. That's idolatry. So the goal we're shooting for is to worship in spirit and in truth in this time. And for this to just be a vehicle that brings you to God, to bring him glory. So Jesus says to worship in spirit and in truth. Again, what does that mean in the context of the sermon? Remember, spirit in that passage, I think, is rightfully lowercase. Some translations make it the Holy Spirit. But we didn't need to press these distinctions too far because when we believe in Jesus, our spirit is awakened to God. And so we can connect and commune with him on a whole new level. So when we hear the words of God preached, again, we're, we're going to come to this text later. We'll talk about it now, I guess. I changed it in my notes. <laughs> when Jesus, when we hear the words of God preached, something should be coming alive in us. Okay, something should be just like vibrating in you. Don't know how to describe it. There aren't good words for it. But when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he appears to two of his disciples walking down the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking, he exposits the whole Old Testament. <laughs> I want to know how in-depth he got. I, wish, I really wish I could have been there. That had to be an awesome just time with Jesus. But they didn't know it was Jesus. And he'd opened the whole Old Testament to them and how it all points to him. Now, the whole thing is about the Messiah and how he fulfills it all, but they didn't know it was him until after he just disappeared. He vanished from their sight, it says. And then afterwards, they're discussing, and they say, were not our hearts burning within us while we were walking down the road? It's their best attempt to describe what ought to be happening as we're listening to the word of God. It's a spiritual act of worship. And then rooted in truth, it has to also be rooted in truth. We're not free to worship God as we perceive him or as we would like him to be. We must worship him as he truly is. We must worship him in truth. This is where the infinite value in scripture comes in. Where we have to cherish, appreciate scripture. Because it is God revealing to us who he is and who we are. And his way of living and how we ought to live. It's God revealing to us the message of the gospel and how we can be made right with him. Scripture is so valuable. It's God's gracious self-revelation to us. And this is needed so much now. Because truth is in peril in our culture. Truth is in great peril. The COVID years were such a great challenge because we couldn't agree on who or what to believe. Our trust in institutions, including the church, has been degrading for years, and it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Our politicians, pundits, they obviously, it's so obvious, you guys, how they spin stories to fit their meta-narrative. While I'm working out at the gym, I see both two different news outlets on at the same time, talking about the same story with completely different headlines pointing a different direction. Whatever we want to believe, we find evidence for on the internet, and we just confirm whatever bias we have. Deep fakes are a thing, and they've already entered into our politics. Knowing the sources that we're gaining our information from has been irrelevant for years for many people. 
but now it's going to be even increased the more and exacerbated with AI. We're going to just type something into a chatbot, <laughs> and it just spits out information to us, but we don't know what information it's pulling from. We even have relativist philosophers questioning whether truth even exists as a concept or not, right? Truth is in peril. It's in danger. And that's why we as believers, as followers of Jesus, need to cling to the word of God as our truth. That's why it is so, so valuable. We need to appreciate God's word. But this isn't a new problem. <laughs> truth being in peril is not a new problem. We see this even in the early years of the church. In the first few years of this new Jesus movement. Paul, he wrote three pastoral epistles, they're called. Two of them to his young apprentice. Feel free to hear Star Wars when I say that. To his young apprentice, Timothy. And he sent one to a guy named Titus, another one of his apprentices. But we're going to spend some time in Timothy, and then we'll jump to Titus at the end. I kind of just read through all three of them this week and just loved everything I was reading in there. It was, it was amazing. So in the devotional, I just kind of went through snippets of it to point out the problem and Paul's solution to the problem. Some people were teaching some really bad theology, like real bad theology. So truth was already an issue in the first century. If we're like, oh man, I wish we could just go back to the church in the first century. They had their issues too about heresy and truth and discovering what truth was. Folks were teaching that the resurrection had already happened. Not like the first resurrection of Jesus, but like the resurrection of the body. They were talking about myths and endless genealogies, Paul says. You've likely heard people do that today. That promoted endless speculation and controversies. These people were teaching that we shouldn't eat certain foods, so likely pulling from the Jewish traditions and saying that Christians were still obligated to uphold those dietary laws as well. They were saying that they shouldn't marry anymore. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Pump the brakes, you guys. That's way wrong. It's all bad theology. And this was just causing quarrels, strife, controversies. Love was not the aim. Growing together in love as a church community was not the aim. It was producing conflict and strife. So in the midst of these controversies, Paul gives Timothy a lot of instructions. He gives him a ton of instructions on, for example, how to appoint elders and deacons and household codes and a lot of things that he's supposed to teach. But among his instructions, he tells Timothy to simply keep preaching the word of God. Here in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, until I come, he's planning on coming to visit him, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to preaching and teaching. He tells him, Timothy, keep preaching God's word. We can make a lot about the distinctions between preaching and teaching. Preaching here, there's a few different words in the Greek that are translated into preaching, or one word. This word here, it means exhortation. It means urge, appeal, plead. <laughs> pleading with your people. That's why I often sound like I'm begging, right? I'm pleading with you. <laughs> I'm preaching. And then teaching. Teaching is kind of just as we think of it today. Learning the truth of God. It's important. 
It's really important. Teaching is very important. Knowing the word of God is super, super important. That's why I spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of heartache in seminary learning how to teach you the word of God. <laughs> Savannah can testify to this. Uh, me memorizing Hebrew words on the way to class in the morning and how painful that was. That was the one class that I was like, if I just pass with a C, I will be so happy. It's brutal. But over the last few years, what I've come to realize is that before I can teach you God's word, I need to teach you to cherish it. If you don't love it, if you don't appreciate it, if you don't cherish it, what, what does it matter? You won't learn it. You won't dive into it on your own. So that's been my aim lately, is to teach you to cherish the word of God, to plead with you to cherish the word of God and to love it. Because it's become obvious to me that un not unlike Ephesus in the first century, that many Christians can hear the word of God taught, applied, even in their specific situations that they're facing, ethical situations, life decisions, cultural issues, and walk away and say, ah, I don't care. Or say, well, I found this other Bible teacher online who says what I want to hear, so how do I know who's right? Well, you have discernment, right? There are better interpretations of the Bible than others, right? And you can discern these things if you work at it. You don't do the same with parenting advice. You don't say, well, I would like to neglect my children, so I found somebody online who says I think I can, so I'm going to. Right? We don't do that. We discern. We say, no, that's actually really bad advice. And we discern. So we can do the same thing with Scripture. We can seek the Spirit of God to reveal the truth of God's Word. He hasn't left us alone in this. So before we even begin to like get into the, the meat of God's word, we have to cherish God's word. And, and we have to know that there is truth in God's word and desire it and pursue it and discover what it actually is. Okay. That was like my intro, golly. Okay. The meat of what I want to say is right here in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. <laughs> All right, so again, he's writing to his apprentice, Timothy, with all these conflicts, bad theology, stuff that's going on in the church in Ephesus. He tells him to do a lot of stuff, but he repeats this time and time again. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. Man, I want to dive into a lot of this. And how? Now we need to take character into account. You guys, the church has got into so many problems. Not looking at the character of ministers of the gospel. Paul says, because you know those from whom you've learned it. He's like talking about himself, Paul, and how he's suffering for the gospel now, how he's imprisoned. He said, you've seen my character, Timothy. He's talking about his mom, Timothy's mom and his grandma, most likely, who imparted the gospel to him. So you, you know these people. That counts for something, knowing the character of somebody. Don't just say, oh, look at the effects. Look at the results that they're getting. Look at how many people are coming. They must be doing something good. 
character. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when you read the Old Testament even, no matter where you are, it all points to Jesus. It's all pointing to him. It's all about faith, salvation in Jesus Christ, that this is God's story in the gospel that he has been writing from the beginning of time, culminating in Jesus. And one day it will be complete in the new creation when Jesus returns. And then he says this, all scripture is God-breathed. I love this. He just like makes up a word. We don't have any evidence of this word anywhere else in scripture or really anywhere else in Koine Greek in this time. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Theonoustos is the Greek word for it. It means it's been inspired by God. That the authors of scripture who, when they were writing, they were supernaturally guided by the Holy Spirit to write and communicate the message that God wanted them to write. So that this is God's word, God's self-revelation to us of who he is. That's vitally important. But what that also means, theonoustos, God breathed, is that through scripture, through the spirit of God whom he has given us, we connect with God through it. Let me make the connection for you. The word for spirit in Greek is pneuma. And that's what he, the, word, the same word for breath. So it's breathed out by God. Elsewhere in scripture, it's connected that Scripture being divinely inspired is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And so when we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us, when we read Scripture, again, something should come alive in us. I love the, uh, I believe it's the Westminster comment, uh, what am I trying to say? Wow. Catechism. Uh, uh, yeah, whatever. In, <laughs> in it, I love their argument for the inspiration of scripture. These are guys like the reformers are super smart, very judicial, like Calvin, Luther, these guys, it's all heady stuff, right? And basically what they say as their argument for the inspiration of scripture is, read it. <laughs> read it and see what happens to you. <laughs> it's part of their argument, and man, they're right. They're right. When you read it and your spirit has been awakened to God by the Holy Spirit, it's different. It's different. And the Spirit of God changed my life. I remember reading it as a, before that when I was a kid, and I was like, yeah, it's good. It's interesting. <laughs> it's good stuff. But then after that, I would read it, and it would come alive. And I couldn't put it down. And I loved God's Word so much. And that burning... The burning in my heart has not stopped. Because it's God-breathed. But you got to read it. Yeah, try it. <laughs> to discover how it helps you connect with God and the experience that you have with him. He said it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. That's why we need to be holding ourselves under the truth of God's word, allowing it to teach us, to rebuke us when we're wrong to correct us and to train us in how we ought to be living in the way of Jesus. We don't hold ourselves over Scripture. We hold Scripture over ourselves, our thinking and our behavior, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're all servants of God. In Scripture, through Scripture, we are equipped to do what he has called us to. 
Then he goes on, in the presence, okay, in this first verse, notice how he's building this up. All right, this isn't a small thing. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. It's quite the buildup, right? <laughs> okay, he, he means it. What he's about to say next, like, this is important. He's taking this seriously. He tells Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. This is the first charge, and he gives him a number of others. But he says, preach the word. And the word that he uses for preach here is different than we saw before. It's the word herald, declare. Think town crier, hear ye, hear ye, walking around, like yelling the news of the day, whatever important news was happening. He tells Timothy to do that. Preach the word. Declare the word of God. Herald it. He gives him a lot of other instructions again, but we just want to focus on that. He tells him preach the word in the midst of all the conflicts and the controversies. Now, what is he to preach? What is this message that we preach? What is this message that as we're hearing the sermon that unites us, that draws us together? As I said, I was blown away this week as I was reading through all the pastoral epistles. In all three of them, Paul is sure, in the midst of all of these controversies, okay, (laughs) in the midst of just people being stubborn, foolish, behaving very improperly, doing ridiculous things, in each of these letters, he takes a good chunk of time to remind them of the gospel. The heart of the message And I think he does this for two reasons. One, to remind them of what they are to preach. Like, hey, (laughs) when you're preaching, yes, you're called to herald, to preach, to declare, like all of the truths of God, which is vast, right? And there's a lot of things that go into there. So we talk about a lot of different topics every Sunday, right? That's what you're called to preach, the full counsel of God. But it all filters back to this. Don't lose this. This is the foundation of it. This is what it points to. Don't don't lose this in your preaching. But I think he does this also to remind them uh, of who they are. And hey, in the midst of all of this, you're, you're saved by nothing but the grace of God too. And the mercy of God. That everybody who is in Christ has been saved solely by God's grace and mercy. So keep that in mind as you're preaching. So we're going to turn to our boy Titus here. Titus doesn't get enough respect. First and second Timothy, everybody goes there. But here in Titus is just this beautiful articulation of the gospel that Paul gives to one of his other apprentices in Titus chapter 3. And band, why don't you guys come and get set up? We're going to go into communion after this. Because this is what we're remembering in communion. Is is this gospel, the heart of God's story, the good news of what God has done in redemption. 
At one time, you too were foolish. <laughs> Ouch, Paul. Like, <laughs> Remember, he's reminding him, in the midst of all these controversies, heresies, and the difficulties, remember the core of the gospel of how you were saved by grace too. Remember who you were. At one time, you two were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in we. He includes himself in this, right? Because he's not on some high horse, right? He's not above them. He's like, no, 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 I was in the same boat as you. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating others, demonic things, evil. But, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is the heart of the message that we come back to. That's what preaching is all about, just reminding you of this. Getting your eyes off of all the other things in your world and drawing your eyes to Christ. Drawing your eyes to his magnificent grace and his mercy, his love, his compassion for you, and how when you are in Christ, he has saved you, he has redeemed you. Going back, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He just chose to show you mercy and grace and save you and redeem you. And so when we hear his word heralded, preached, we hold ourselves under the authority of scripture when we learn and obey it. We're drawn to the truth of the gospel. We're communing with God. Remembering that we are justified by his grace. That we are heirs with Christ of eternal life in the new creation. And this is what we're celebrating in communion. It's what Christ has done to redeem us, to save us. And so as we're taking communion, I invite you to just worship. To just worship him for his word that he haven't, hasn't left us want wandering, how do, how do we live? How do we obey God? He's given us his word. We're not left wondering how do we be made right with God? What does God approve of? We know that we're justified by grace through faith. And we are made right with God because of his glorious gospel. Not by just trying to be better in our own righteous deeds but because of what he has done for us. So as you're holding these communion elements, just thank him. Thank him for the gospel. Thank him for his word. Thank him for salvation and the opportunity to sit together in community and hear the word of God open, preached, declared, that our hearts can burn within us. We can worship him in spirit and in truth through the listening of a sermon through the singing of songs and praise.